everyone, and welcome to Meetups with Mediators, a podcast brought to you by the Columbus Bar Association. I'm your host, Veronica Cravener. This is a podcast for both mediators and attorneys who represent clients at mediation. The goal is to provide takeaways to help you make your next mediation your best mediation. Today's topic is co-mediation. In case you aren't familiar, co-mediation is the use of two mediators rather than just one. If you're wondering how you might use co-mediation and the benefits and challenges of doing so, then today's episode is just for you. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by not one, but two guests, Mike Moran and Sandra Mendel-Furman. So with that, Mike and Sandra, welcome to Meetups with Mediators, and thanks for being here today. Thank you for inviting us. We appreciate you having us. Well, before we get right to it, I just wanted to say, you know, I'm thrilled that the two of you are both here today. Um, I will say typically when I think about co-mediation, I typically think about a more experienced mediator sort of mentoring uh, a newer mediator. But I know that the two of you have been mediating for quite some time and, and quite some time together. So I'm really interested to hear your take on co-mediation. Uh, just to give our listeners some background information, uh, can you each share what are the types of disputes that you have mediated and um, just a little bit about your background? All right. Well, I finished law school in 1979 and I practiced actively doing administrative hearings, uh, judge-only trials, and a lot of appellate work, including Ohio Supreme Court uh, appeals, for about 18 years, sole practice and in-house counsel. And I was done. After 18 years, I was done. And I thought, what do I do with the skill set? What do I do with my interest in helping people? But how do I not manage a a solo law practice? And how do I find a place for myself in the world that doesn't ignore or disregard the training and experience I had. So I took a one-week mediation class and thought, this is great. And from there, I was lucky enough through my labor and employment work to have had two friends on different sides of the table, one labor and one uh, union, excuse me, one labor and one employer. And they had a panel opening to do hearings. And I got nominated to do it as a trial basis. And then off I went running, not in mediation, but as a neutral. So I believe that I actually started first with doing these hearings. And yet at the same time, I also came over to domestic relations and started doing mediation there. And then things evolved for me because as I had zero domestic relations background. I had labor and employment and civil practice uh, background. And I kept finding where can I do my, where can I do this skill set? So I sought people out more than people seeking me out. Mediation was not uh, super popular back then. There were a few practitioners, and many of them were non-attorneys. So the court appointed uh adjunct over at domestic relations seemed to me to be a good fertile ground, both for training and skill honing and the fact that I'd for sure get a paycheck, not much, but a paycheck. And then I was developing my labor and employment work to expand that. And then I went to the Better Business Bureau and started doing consumer business cases. Then I went to EEO and started doing mediation there with all the variety of uh, federal civil rights laws, and it's it's just kind of expanded, but it was an aversion to conflict that put me in the field. I was tired of being the person holding the sword. I wanted to either hold a gavel as an arbitrator or be a mediator and let parties uh, shake hands across the bridge. I hope I answered your question, Veronica. Yeah, definitely. So it sounds like you've you've had a wide variety of experiences. And uh, I think I've heard uh, sort of that sentiment a lot, like wanting to sort of switch from being kind of what I think of like a like a litigator, a heavyweight boxer in the ring to sort of wanting to work more like collaboratively um, and help folks try to try to find solutions that work for them. Very much so. I, I think that if somebody forced the issue with me and said, would you rather be the adjudicator or would you rather be the mediator? I'd really be sore put to give you the straight answer. Um, They each have their rewards, they each have their challenges. Interesting. 
And Mike, can you tell us about your background and also the types of disputes that you've mediated? Sure. I um, graduated from law school in 1994 and was admitted in Ohio. Um, I'd been interested in dispute resolution since the late 1980s as an undergraduate communications major. I started studying different dispute resolution modalities at that time and developed uh, academic expertise, if you will, rather than skills expertise in dispute resolution. I knew about different ways of doing dispute resolution and then was trained to do mediation, took ADR in law school, and uh, was very interested in doing it. And in my early career as a at the time, I was a government lawyer when I got out of law school. I had a, I've had a private practice for 24 years, and over those 24 years, I've been employed uh, by the government for a good number of those years, at least half, about 15 of those years probably, and have also been in private practice continuously. Um, in my private practice, I did plaintiff's personal injury, serious personal injury and wrongful death, um, criminal defense, white-collar criminal defense, healthcare law, administrative law, occupational and professional licensing, and municipal law, um, also firearms and Second Amendment law. Um, my experience with mediation really was early in my career. I was a, a volunteer court-appointed mediator for Settlement Week for the Common Pleas Court's General Division and mediated some business disputes and some bodily injury claims uh, cases and um, found actually that I didn't really enjoy it so much at that point. And I think part of it was just where I was at in my career. I really decided I wanted to go more in the direction of being a trial lawyer. So then over the next 17 years, I did quite a bit of criminal, civil, and administrative uh, trial work. Um, also became a mayor's court magistrate and did that. So I have some experience doing adjudication. I've done that for about 15 years. But about seven and a half years ago, when Judge Montgomery, Judge Rob Montgomery, was elected probate judge of Franklin County, um, he asked me to come work for him as his director of mediation and to start a mediation program. And to my knowledge, at that time, that was the first full-time court annex mediation program in the state of Ohio at a probate court. Um, so I started as uh, the director in 2011. I uh, needed to set up all the policies, procedures, and forms, uh, which I did, did a lot of research, uh, updated my own mediation training, went and took some new training, and uh, ended up starting to do mediations at the probate court. And primarily um, what I've done as a mediator at the probate court has been uh, mediating elder cases, which would include your guardianship type cases of incompetent adults. I've mediated adoptions, name changes, civil disputes, contract disputes, things that have been transferred to the probate court from the general division that are general division cases, uh, will contests, um, personal property disputes, asset concealment actions, um, very, very large dollar trust disputes and estate disputes over both personal property and testamentary intent. Um, done a lot of multi-party high conflict mediation uh, involving people that might not even necessarily speak English. Uh, had the opportunity to do Skype mediation internationally with somebody overseas before. Um, and then around 2012 or 13, as for, for my colleague here uh, made contact with me and was interested in getting more into the elder mediation area. And at that point, um, I originally, as staff mediator, director, was doing it all myself and wanted to have a little more of a bench. So um, given her background and interest, we went ahead and, and put her on our panel, essentially, as a contract mediator. And then um, she had a lot of experience that I didn't have, so I started using her to co-mediate with me. And then we found there was some benefit. I found is I, I found that it was you know it's exhausting. I think to be a mediator and and at the probate court, our just my style of mediation and the way the nature of the disputes we get, they tend to be fairly lengthy mediations. Um, so we tend to go very much in depth and try and work through the dispute and really unpeel the layers of the onion. So that's an all day case usually. Most of our cases go all day. Um, and that's exhausting as a mediator. And so having a second person as a co-mediator is very helpful. So we started co-mediating together about five years ago and have co-mediated pretty much that list of types of cases I've done. We've done all those types of cases together as co-mediators. Um, and then in my private practice over the years, um, I've done a handful of mediations, but primarily I don't really 
do a ton of that. Um, my most of my mediation participation as a private attorney has been as a plaintiff in a bodily injury dispute or a business dispute where I'm advocating for a party in mediation. And I guess I've come full circle that I thought ADR was very useful. I got skeptical about it as a young attorney, and now I've, after 17 years of uh, kicking people in the shins, I got to the place where I'd like to make peace again, and, and I think there's a lot of benefits to dispute resolution, particularly in the probate arena when you're talking about families. Well, great. And I think um, the last part of that is actually a perfect segue in my, to my next question, because I was going to ask how the two of you got started with co-mediating together. So it sounds like you were at probate court uh, launching a newer mediation program. Sandra was on your contract roster, and you started noticing that the length of cases. No, no, she she approached me and wanted to be a contract roster, oh, okay. and we created a contract roster at that point for okay. her to assist me. Yes. Oh, okay. okay. So, I remember it somewhat differently. Okay. But that's okay. Do you, Do you want to share how you remember? Sure. Um, I forgot that I started mediating in law school. I was affiliated with the Knight Prosecutor Program. Scott Dewhurst had kicked that off as uh, he was one. I think one year ahead of me at Capital Law, and I did that. I think my senior. I had four years as a Knight student. And I did that with him. So I was intrigued even back then. So I, to give the impression that I was moving away, I was also moving towards or moving backwards to something that I had enjoyed way back when. In terms of Michael and I meeting, I'm pretty sure it was through training. I, I think we were taking uh, some sort of ADR training. We happened to sit next to each other. We happened to have the same or similar reactions to what we were learning and just kind of got along. So it's the part that is correct about what Michael said is I did approach him and I did it as a volunteer for a number of years. Uh, I think probably my first two years I came and second chaired or co-mediated. I didn't second chair, I co-mediated and did it as a learning process. And then Michael through his appreciation and great efforts on um, the behalf of, I think, the court, the the uh, people that come and use the services there, he was able to get it formalized into a contract position, but it was an evolutionary process. So I stand corrected. That is true. I'd forgotten about that. You, you did volunteer for at least two years or a year and a half or two years or more before we created a panel. So. so this is a lesson in how to build your practice. Perhaps it is. Perhaps it isn't. Right. I don't. I don't know. But that's how I. I remembered us yeah. meeting through yeah. CLE. Does that oh. sound right? That we were taking CLE and we happened coincidentally to be seated, seated next to each other and had rapport. That's how I. I, remember I have it. no recollection of that at all. I, I okay. recall you coming up to the probate court and seeing me about this, but okay. Yeah. Well, well, or well, calling me or coming up and saying you're doing elder mediation now. I'm interested in that. That could have been so. Sort of like all great partnerships, right? You never really remember when it began. You just know true. it's always worked and it's that's always true. been good. That's true. Well, thank you. I, well, cool. I, I can buy into that. Thank you. Well, so, you know, you mentioned a little bit, uh, Mike, I think you mentioned a lot of the mediations that you see in probate tend to be pretty lengthy mediation. And one one of the benefits is having a co-mediator who can share in that with you, help keep your energy up, help you see things maybe you don't see. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, like, you know, what are some other benefits of co-mediation? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think there's... We talk about the 30,000-foot view, the strategic aspect, and then the 10-foot the, the view, the tactical aspect. You know, at the tactical level, I think co-mediation is beneficial because, well, not to fall into a cliche, but two heads are better than one. Um, you know, it takes a lot of focus and concentration to listen to people, and I think that it's easy to fade in and out and having a second set of ears and eyes on the evidence and documents and people's moods and, and affect is something that's helpful. Um, as I mentioned, we get a lot of multi-party high-conflict cases in the probate court. Having a cattle call mediation is difficult with one mediator, so having a second mediator to corral people uh, is helpful. Um, so I think it's useful for uh, resource enhancement, uh, force multiplication, whatever you want to call it that you have the ability to 
do a better group more efficiently, a bigger group more efficiently. You may perhaps pick up on things. And then I think the other thing is, I think mediators the, you know, can be the loneliest job in the world. It's helpful to be able to leave the caucus room or the mediation room and then have a powwow with your co-mediator about, okay, um, what are we going to do now? And then go back in and go at it. Um, we tend to use a fair number of caucuses in our mediations. I know other mediators, that's a stylistic thing that there's a lot of debate inside the mediation community. I know mediators that don't use them at all and don't believe in them. I know other mediators like myself, I use them. I, I find them comfortable or I, they're, they're, they work for my comfort level and the results I get seems to show that they work with my style or we, 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 we use a lot of caucuses. So, it's helpful when you're in caucus, sometimes you don't want to leave. You can hold, stay in caucus, one mediator can, send the second person out to see the other group. Okay, so it sounds like maybe on occasion, um, when you use a caucus, one mediator will go with one party, the other will go with the other, and then, and then the two of you will sort of have your own little powwow after to catch each other up, or how do you guys Sometimes, I mean, typically that? we stay together, but sometimes we might babysit, so to speak, one group of litigants and then send the other mediator out to ask a question or get more information. Yeah, I see it functioning a little bit more as um, task task mastering. So if you're inside with one group and copies need to be made, then that person may run the copies. If you've been sitting in the room with one group and you've been in there three hours, you might send the other mediator out to go say, hey, we haven't forgotten you. We know you're in this room. Why don't you go to lunch? Uh, but not breaking the connection or the communication that you have with the group you're with. So there's a value in that. And I'd like to pick up on this uh, idea of loneliness and the benefits of co-mediation. So it's not unusual for me to turn to Mike or Mike to turn to me and do an I thing and say, time for a break. And then we'll, we'll say, did you hear that? Did you understand that? Where do you think we ought to go from here? Or even at the beginning of a session, you know, just to talk about strategy. I don't know why he's frowning, but well, I'll find out. Um, even once we we receive mediation statements, which everyone should pay attention that's listening to the podcast. They're important to us. They're useful to us. We like them. And when we have attorneys that don't prepare them or we have self-represented parties that don't know how to put one together. It's a little frustrating for us, so we have to do a lot more legwork in the beginning. But oftentimes we'll look at the me uh, mediation statements, Michael and I, together at the outset of a session and say, so typically we'd start with plaintiffs, but maybe here we don't want to. All right, so there's so then he would go pro, I would go con, or we would make some decisions about process, and then other times the, the caucuses that we take allow us to talk about strategy and direction, um, which is really reinforcing our strengths and hopefully giving the parties the best of both of us because it is it is draining and each of us has our strengths. Um, it also helps that sometimes one of us is the more empathic party that you are showing the people their love and kindness and yes I hear you kind of uh, not fake but you know genuine expression of understanding and the other person is more task oriented well if this then what and what do you need to do such and such uh, Michael typically is a lot interested in background and, and relationships that pre-existed the dispute and I used to be skeptical about that, like we're wasting time. We've been in here an hour and 20 minutes about relationships and we haven't gotten an offer yet, a demand, excuse me. But it also has worked because it is the exact setting for people to be able to say things they wouldn't be able to say in a courtroom because they're irrelevant, okay, or they're objectionable on some other legal basis. And the fact that Michael has successfully demonstrated to me through experience that that approach is worthwhile. The few occasions that I've done cases down there by myself, I've adopted some of his methodology and, um, you know, approach things differently. I 
we're very different um, in many ways. And I think that that is a benefit to the parties. It's not the it's not the black and white good cop, bad cop kind of scenario that you might expect. We're not sitting there beating people into submission by tricking them or by manipulating them, although I, I would say that some manipulation may occur in the process, but we we seem to have that kind of energy that takes place when we caucus and also from the fact we've probably got, I don't know, 30 35 under our belt at this point in time that we've done together. I'm not a good counter. You think it's more? All right, well, I'm not a good counter. That's why I went to law school, so I wouldn't have to count. So it sounds like sort of, you know, you both realize you have different styles, but you combine the two of you and you can really, through using co-mediation, maximize your abilities of, of being able to make a connection with the parties and provide the parties with a process that's going to be productive for them. I think that's true. And I, I think that one thing that I think is another big aspect of co-mediation or what I find particularly helpful is, um, you, you know, what we do as mediators is not rocket science. It's it's actually very straightforward, but it is a complex skill set. And um, it requires, frankly, the first thing one must do, and this is actually true of the martial arts as well, is one does not seek to control other people without controlling oneself. So um, it's the same in mediation. If you're going to be a mediator and you're going to try and control a process, you have to have control over and regulate your own emotions and uh, approaches. And that is a challenge, again, to do, I think, as a mediator by oneself, because it's completely self-regulating. <laughs> when you've got a co-mediator, you can take breaks and provide feedback to each other and just say, look, um, the way you're approaching Nancy is not good. It's, it's, she's closing up every time, or you're, you're pushing Nancy's buttons every time you open your mouth, whether you know it or not. And, and, and sometimes we don't see this uh, with ourselves, and having someone else there to point this out is, I think, extremely valuable and, and helps with regulating emotions. And, you know, we control process, parties control outcome. They can help design process, but essentially we control it, and uh, it helps create a better process to achieve a settlement. I couldn't agree more. He's called me out a few times. I've called him out. It also, in terms of, you know, somebody not liking us, somebody not hearing us anymore, somebody getting defensive. So we've had those exchanges in addition to doing strategy sessions in between caucuses. Uh, there's also a difference in role in the sense that Michael's truly a court representative in a greater sense than I am. Uh, it's disclosed that I'm a contract mediator and Michael's also chief counsel and wears some other hats over at the court. So I like to believe, I don't know what's real and what's true, that me being the contractor outside Perhaps they're going to open up maybe a tad more knowing that I have no business with the court otherwise. And I, I think that maybe is a license for me to do the ones on my own. We don't do entirely co-mediation there. Michael's got a whole s slew of cases that he handles 100% by himself. He's the boss. Um, and I've come in and done them either because of his overscheduled self or a need to do it or illness or whatever it may have been. But I also think it's kind of interesting because they can, a party can make assumptions, false or not, that he's got the ear of the court, so they better settle. But they might have reassurance from me, well, she doesn't. Because I'm very clear when I do my introduction that I don't even know the names of all the referees, which is pretty much true. I, I, I think I might know them all, but I'm not really sure that I know them all. Also, there's the there's just the synergy or the energy of somebody's a morning person. I'm not going to say which one of us that is, and some, one of us is an afternoon, evening person in terms of energy. So having the two bodies in the room, the energy transfer, I'm not trying to sound woo-woo or mystical about this. We but sort of occurs. balance each other out, sort of. It, it occurs, yes. Uh, you need sustenance and... 
I think that the way our our uh, makeup is and our energy is directed to the parties helps get a lot of results. Well, so we've heard a bit about the the benefits. I mean, can you talk about what are the challenges of co-mediating? Well, I, I, again, I mean, you know, the more personalities you put in the room, the more difficult it is to sell a case. And so, you know, it, it's tough sometimes, you know, who's going to take the lead, you know, who's going to who's going to make the initial approach, who's the one who's going to carry the water to the other people. You know, the challenges are you have to develop those things. And we've worked together long enough now that we can do a lot of things kind of without having to discuss them explicitly at length. But I think that would be one challenge is, is that you're not going to walk into a room with another mediator and just approach mediation. It's going to be wonderful the first time because there's things that need to be learned about people's styles and people's strengths and weaknesses and how they approach things. And, you know, this is a science or excuse me, this is not a science. What we do, it's an art. It is not a science. It's not a science. It's based on social science, but it is not a science itself. So before I turn it to you, Sandra, I was going to ask a quick follow-up to you, Mike. Um, So I guess, are are you more of a proponent that if you're going to use co-mediation, it should be with a fellow mediator that you're going to be doing co-mediation with more than just once because it sounds like it takes some time for the mediators to build rapport. Yeah, ideally, I mean, again, you, you know, and uh, I think there was a famous saying by, by a politician during the first Gulf War that you don't go to war with the army you want, you go to war with the army you got. So if you got to do a mediation with a co-mediator that you don't know very well or haven't worked with, well, then you got to do it and you do it. But yes, everything being equal, Having the same partner on a consistent basis is, I think, advantageous, no question. I mean, that's just common sense. And it does take time, and some go better than others with co-mediation. Some things lend themselves better to co-mediation than others. But I have found it valuable. I I, I find it less taxing to do mediation, typically, with her there. Um, and, And I find that on the days that I'm doing it by myself, that it can be, you know, if it goes a long day, it can be a taxing day. It sort of reminds me of that saying, what is it, something like, um, joy shared is doubled, pain shared is half, something okay, like that, right? There Am I getting go. it right? That something right. something along those lines. I like to um, expand or take maybe a slightly different tack on that. I'm fiercely independent. I haven't had an employer since 1994. And when they asked me to do co-mediation with people that want to learn mediation at domestic relations, I hated it, uh, bluntly. I was dealing with somebody who was unskilled. They're, They're not comfortable with it yet. So I'm very, very, as is Michael, results oriented. We both are keeping our eye on the fact that the judge will value the program based upon results. So if I was doing it and have done it over the past, since I've been doing this since 97, however many years that is, 21 years, um, had to do co-mediation, you could see it in my face. I didn't want to be in the room. So... With Michael and I, he was a trial lawyer, younger and different kinds of experience than me, but he knew what he was doing and had the educational interest in mediation that I did not have. I was interested in process and results and how it made me feel to watch people shake hands and resolve their dispute. It's just, there's so much gratification that comes from that. It's a good day's work. So... I headed into this co-mediation wondering, well, he seems like I'll be okay to do it with him. He's got the connections through probate court. He knows the attorneys practicing down there, not because he was a probate lawyer, but because of his administrative position there and, and, you know, where he sits in the court hierarchy. But I didn't know if it would be okay because of the independence and the solo nature of my practice and who I was and the kind of mediation and arbitration and fact-finding I was doing as a professional long before I met my Michael Moran. And it's this 
the multi-party is really a prime uh, consideration and why co-mediation is effective. It, you really do need the help and the stamina and the reinforcement and the process management with, with two people with the probate cases. I, I settle a lot of the ones I've done in his absence as a sole mediator, but with the multi-party ones, I've had to go to second sessions. Uh, sometimes it's not just me needing the second session. It's the party's needs or the council's needs. But it's actually been a lot more efficient, I think, time and court resource-wise when we've done co-mediation because we tend to either know pretty much by 2 o'clock if it's done or not or we say have a nice day, you know. And it's I won't turn my back on anybody till 6, 7, 8, 9 o'clock if I have to. But in the multi-party cases, if Michael wasn't there, I don't think the results would show that I was as effective as I was when he was present. So I've got a follow-up question for you, Sandra, because I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, when you were asked to do some co-mediation, it sounds like maybe in your domestic cases with with more inexperienced mediators Mm -hmm. who hadn't yet developed that skill, you were not really a fan of it. Um, But it sounds like you do really enjoy co-mediating with Mike. Like, can you talk a little bit about what was sort of the turning point for you when you realized, like, hey, this is going to work, like this is... This is the right fit. Well, first of all, it's who you know in some respects, because Michael would know so many members of the bar that would appear in front of us uh, because he'd seen them in ABCDFG kind of venues, uh, whether it was in his personal injury practice or whatever. I didn't know hardly anybody in the probate bar. So it was appealing to me that he had at least... That I'm not sure I'm answering your question. I may get back to it. I'm, I think I'm going to go round around. It's okay. Circles. You're you're going in an interesting direction. Okay. So, so Michael, Mike would have the personality and the history and the CVs on people coming in front of us, and an avid desire to get a result. Okay. And he was confident that the era of confidence in him stark contrast to a law student or a social worker or a counselor saying, I want to be a mediator over domestic relations. And I'm sitting there watching them, not on purpose, obviously, but fumble through a mediation. And I'd be sitting on my hands or biting my lip till it bled to take over and get the result. And I didn't have that frustration with Michael. So... I'm grateful for the opportunity to be in that court, very grateful, working with someone who is experienced, not maybe with a kind of background in mediation and the years in, but all kinds of other experience. And the position that he holds allows us to kind of have this carrot and stick kind of in the background that isn't really used at all, but there's an appearance that there's authority here in the room, and I would not have that without him in the room. I don't believe. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I hope I'm answering the question. So there is another uh, benefit to co-mediation that I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, and that is I think that if there are safety concerns or issues that are attenuated, that co-mediation makes a lot of sense as well. And I think this is an area... It's an area of responsibility I have at the probate court, the security of the court. And, you know, as a mediator, I think about safety and security for mediators a lot. I don't think it's talked about as much as we need to talk about it. And I actually did a presentation earlier this year on safety for mediators. But I think uh, I was at that presentation. I remember going to one of your presentations. Yeah, it was really good. Well, thank you. Uh, but I think that if there is a safety concern, a, a simple fix for that is to, to think about a co-mediation model. And then you've got two people in the room. It's a much safer scenario than doing a mediation by oneself. Uh, and so I think that's a benefit that should be thought about. And I think mediators need to start thinking more about safety and security, their own and that of the other litigants or mediation parties. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think security is something that can't be underestimated. I know, um, I mean, I'm fortunate, just like you, Mike, you know, I work at a courthouse, we've got security, metal detectors, right? But um, 
but yeah, I mean, safety is something that just should not be underestimated and, 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 um, definitely needs to be planned for. And so it sounds like you're mindful of that when you mediate the probate court, thinking about the benefits of having two mediators in the room for not only mediator safety, but also maybe for the parties too, I imagine. Yes. We've had cases where it came front and center to my brain. It doesn't usually come front and center that I'm threatened or there may be a threat here. That's not my nature. But we've had a few, and it definitely is, I've got your back, I'll get out of the room, you get out of the room, you know how to handle yourself, I know where everybody is. And so I'm grateful for Michael's background in this area. Um, not feeling a threat, like I say, most of the time. Probably the 2% that I have, I was very grateful to be co-mediating. All right, so I thought we could switch things up a bit and play a little game. Um, if you've listened to other episodes, you've seen that or heard that I like to play games with guests. So this one I've called, What's Your Next Move? And I've got two hypotheticals. Uh, so I'll go through each and then I'll just get feedback from each of you in terms of how you would handle it co-mediating together. Okay, so here's the first typo. Parties are in joint session. Each side has shared his or her position. Each side has made a proposal. The other side has declined. One side is represented. The other side is not. So what is your next move? Or how would you approach this? as you co-mediate together. I'm stymied a little bit, Veronica, by seeing that as a co-mediation issue um, or a strategy or something peculiar, particular to co-mediation. But in an attempt to answer your question, we bend over backwards. We've done this before to not provide legal advice to the unrepresented party, but work extra, extra hard to make sure that that party understands batna, watna, plus minus of moving forward in the matter. Um, once we've satisfied our belief that that's extremely important and there's been a no, we'll look at each other, we'll go outside and we'll say, what do you think? Do you think there's a soft spot even in the no, based upon everything else we've heard today? And then we'll keep plugging. But a no often is not a no, and in other times a no is a hell no. And the fact that we can have different perspectives and clearly do have different perspectives, as you've heard in this interview, is going to oftentimes turn that no into a, a settlement. But the unrepresented has got its own separate problems. We have even told people to go get counsel and terminated the mediation. So if there's something that someone should draw from this podcast is try not to have those unless they're absolutely necessary. Find, find someone to assist you because the interests usually are great. I mean, we, we do have six, $700 cases, but usually not. Okay. And, and Mike, is there anything that you wanted to share in terms of how you might approach it? And I think just use the resource of having two people there. So I think consulting with each other outside the hearing of the parties. And in your hypothetical, were the parties at joint session or in caucus? They were in joint session. Okay. Well, then the other thing I would say is, is that, I, you know, I would put him in caucus, <laughs> you know. I, I personally don't like keeping people at the same table in joint session facing each other for too long because I don't think it's that beneficial to be blunt with you for the kind of cases I'm mediating. Now, I understand there's other mediators that do other types of mediation that have different opinions about that, but I find that separating people into caucus, you know, you know I think the, not, the, the argument against caucus is that it engenders distrust or it makes people wonder what's being said about them in caucus, basically, by both the mediator and by the other parties. I simply have not found that. I, I think that's true. There's no question. People are wondering what's being said in the other room and what are they talking about me. But when it comes down to it, 
I also don't think that interferes with settlement that much. And I think the, but I think lowering the temperature by removing people from in proximity to each other and being able to dissect interests and motives uh, and behaviors candidly with the mediators, with two people too, two people telling you, hey, you know, or not telling you, but asking you questions, pointing things out, I think increases the ability to get settlements. So that's how I would approach that is I'd go right to caucus with the other mediator and then I'd have a, a powwow with the other mediator about how we were going to approach the caucus. Then I'd go in and caucus with each side. Interesting. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, what I do, uh, so I do basically all of my mediation solo and I, I typically start from caucus. Oh, you and start in caucus. I typically start from caucus. So this sort of relates to one of our other episodes, but yeah, I'll typically start from caucus and then bring parties together if if there's some reason to do so. Like if they're at the point where they want to exchange documents or share pictures or explain something, or if they're at the point where they're discussing the terms of the agreement, if there's some sort of reason or someone wants to make a personal apology, something like that. But um, yeah, no, I'm with you there. Uh, and, and I'm and, not. It's funny. Yeah. I, the vast majority of my other mediations, I try to keep people in the room unless there's a, a real danger kind of issue. And I just did, a, you know, an explosively unpleasant mediation in domestic on Monday where they would not be in the same room. But I actually mm-hmm. believe it would have settled had they both been in the same room. Huh. But so maybe- I have learned the caucus model I've learned to appreciate its benefits from Michael. Uh, We've even gotten to the point where seldom do we insist upon or request that they do opening statements. We try to explore that up front and say, how great is the animosity? Would it be helpful or harmful to have all the parties in the room at the same time hearing the mediation position statement basically reiterated or... or, uh, digested and we've we play it by ear a little bit but michael has allowed me to add that to my repertoire where it really isn't my preference my preference would be keeping the parties and maybe that's a labor and employment union kind of thing where they have to work together there's no choice there they work in the same work environment so they need to be face to face but i'm in a different venue in in these scenarios even though often it's family that's a good point with a labor there's an ongoing relationship with labor situation with either arbs or mediations there's going to be or there is whereas in many of these cases there will be an ongoing familial relationship however there isn't going to be any relationship after the mediation people don't go out <laughs> for it they don't want it so no. So do you think like with this hypothetical, you know, parties are at impasse, they're in joint session. So if the two of you were co-mediating this, you think you would sort of have that debate privately? Like, do we keep parties in joint session or do we caucus? We tend to caucus. Yeah, yeah. We would just it's, it's an yeah, automatic at this yeah. point yeah, would, in time. Yeah, yeah, it's a no brainer to me. Why I mean, if you're at an impasse at a joint session, what are you going to do to break the impasse? You, you got to send them home now. Oh, we're at an impasse. Have a nice day. No, you're going to go to caucus and then you're going to start breaking down people's resistance about why it is they can't come off the position they're on and trying to peel back the onion and figure out what is it, what interest is it that's not being met by the proposal that's on the table. And then is it, and and then can we have over, you know, can we, can we take a Venn diagram of interests and overlay those from each caucus to where we have commonality and intersection? Cool. put. All right. So hypo number two. So now parties are in caucus. Both parties are represented. One side tells you the other is unreasonable, and they are debating whether they want to continue with the mediation. Every day of the week. Yeah, I, I hear that every day of the week. I mean, it's just. So how do you decide sort of who approaches the party or? Well, oh, it's posturing. I mean, yes. It's just posturing. I mean, to me, when somebody says, I'm going to push away from the table and leave, my usual response is, but yet you're still here. That's usually what I say when I hear something like that. Because it's like, if you're going to walk, then walk. (laughs) But they're telling you they're getting frustrated. They're not walking away from the table. They're telling you they're frustrated. So, again, to me, it's you redouble, peeling back what the interest is. And that's 
I think, a particular moment that we often have that I like co-mediating with Michael. Um, Because he says the remark in a manner that I don't say it, all right? I'm going to be like the little terrier that grabs onto somebody's um, cuff of their pants and is not going to let go. It's a slap in my face to my skill set if somebody says that. And Michael put that language out that he does, and it's the, it seems to be the magic bullet that gets everybody talking again. And my reaction is, oh my gosh, it's going in the toilet. What can I do? Um, I don't want it to go because I know we can get this settled. And that's a, it's a difference in personality and a different way of saying things that has allowed us many, many times to be successful. When we've heard that at nine o'clock, we've heard it at 11.45, we've heard it at three o'clock, and yet we're there at eight o'clock typing it up. So I think that's a co-mediation benefit that I don't know that I thought about until you gave us that hypo. But there's, and that's because, you know, he's like the voice of the court, even though he's not officially, and there's disclaimers that we that he makes at the beginning of our session. Um and I think there's a real value to the parties that that he's there to say that because I would spin out in a different direction. I, w- I would maybe be the be the t- annoying terrier or be the hurt puppy that goes and slinks off. Okay, you know, and it's just Michael just cuts through it and gets their attention in a way that seems to keep us with pretty decent settlement. Ratios we, there. We, we're usually between sixty and seventy percent. I mean, I don't think I've ever been below sixty percent in a year, and we've done over seventy before or at seventy. So, that those are numbers that, according to the research I've done nationally, is within the completely acceptable or above average range of what a probate court annex mediation program looks like. Um, so, further support for two heads are better than one, right? Right. That's true. You know, and on your hypothetical, as far as, you know, they're wanting to walk, I mean, usually my response is something along the lines of, well, you know, you think they're completely unreasonable and ridiculous in the other room. I haven't been authorized to tell you what they're saying in the other room, but what do you think they're saying about you in the other room? Do you think it's all that different from what you're saying about them? You you know, comments like that. And then you start redirecting it to, okay. Let's say you do go ahead and walk. What does it look like next week then? What are you going to be doing? Are you going to be taking depositions? Are you going to send out? You haven't done any discovery. You're a year and a half in this case. Neither side's done any discovery. So you're going to start doing discovery. you got a trial day in six weeks. You know, I start asking questions like that. And that's what helped me. I was not a probate lawyer when I was hired at the probate court. And I had fairly limited experience in probate court other than as doing some guardianship work. But... Um, and had been a fiduciary once, but I was an experienced trial lawyer, and I think that's what's allowed me to function well in probate court is a knowledge of how trials work and how the legal process works versus having an exhaustive knowledge of probate law. I don't need to be an act. I, I actually think, as a mediator, that being a subject matter expert at times is a detriment, not a benefit as a mediator, because I think then we tend to focus into the weeds and focus on things that are irrelevant to the issue, which is people in dispute, not necessarily do you know everything about the trust code. That's what the magistrates are for. The mediator needs to know about human nature and getting people to work together and what the cost of a trial is and how long it takes versus the minutiae of the trust code. So having two lawyers as mediator, two mediators again, doubles the amount of legal knowledge you're talking about because now you're talking about you know, 40 years and 35 and 25. So now you're talking 65 years of experience as, as lawyers versus 20 or 25. I want to talk about the subject matter expertise aspect. So many attorneys, when I go to CLE, are saying, well, we want that mediator. We want the mediator who has the subject matter expertise. I don't do anything or have never tried in the area of MedMal, and perhaps a person that has been a trial attorney or a PI attorney in that area would be better served by a mediator who had that practice. 
I came in pretty ice cold on probate, not all the way to neophyte virgin, but pretty close. When one of the attorneys or a group of them or a combination of them starts in on, well, did Sandra, did you read, or Sandra and Michael, did you read our mediation statement? The law is clearly in our favor. We both immediately connect and deflect. Well, yeah, you can tell the magistrate that, but that's not why we're in this room. And it's worked for us to be able to disclaim the probate practice, I think, because of um, it, it hasn't seemed to be necessary in the room. And I hope that attorneys that practice in other than probate can do a takeaway from Michael's and my co-mediation and see that it's, it's the skill set, again, the art of mediating. It isn't, Mike made reference to how many years together we've done law yeah, my gray hair may give me a certain presence in the room that I try not to think about. Um, but maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I believe truly that all the other benefits that we covered in the room far outweigh any uh, ad- added value that anybody would get if either one of us had been a practicing probate attorney. So... Well, that seems like a, a good place to sort of uh, wrap things up. Um, so just a couple final things. Can you each share with our listeners um, a fun fact? And if folks are interested in continuing the conversation with you, how can people connect? Sure. Uh, fun fact about me, uh, I like to whitewater raft, and I've rafted the Gauley, upper and lower Gauley River and New River in West Virginia multiple times. Cool. So uh, I, I enjoy doing that. It's a physical challenge, and you have to work with a team of people to uh, to pull it off to be effective to stay in the boat. Um, as far as getting a hold of me, I'd be glad to talk to any mediators that are interested in this, and they can reach me at the probate court at 614-525-3638, or my email is mrmoran at Franklin countyohio.gov And how about you, Sandra? I can be reached through my email most easily rather than my phone, but it's Sandra at Sandra Mendel M-E-N-D-E-L Furman.com And my secret my fun fact is similar to Michael's but a different activity. I'm a very avid cyclist. And I was someone who was the last picked my whole high school, middle school, elementary for any team sport. And I think that would still be true. But you put me on a bicycle and I can go 30, 40, 50, 60, up to 100 miles in a day if need be. And I do want to put in a plug for that. It's environmentally wonderful. And I will tell you that Central Ohio has got some of the most incredible natural beauty that I absolutely was oblivious to and ignorant of until I became a cyclist. We live in a great part of the state. It's beautiful. Well, very cool. And have you have you tried out the scooters that I see throughout downtown yet? Oh, I'm dead set against them. Yeah. I don't want to lose friends that I may have made earlier in the podcast, but I am dead set against those scooters. So, so just, the, just the cycling. Well, very cool. Well, hey, uh, Mike and Sandra, this has been great fun. I really appreciate the two of you coming on today's show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of Meetups with Mediators. Let's make your next mediation your best mediation. Talk to you next time.